If you'll turn in your Bible, please, to Matthew chapter 1, the message will be this, this, the message will be in two parts. The first, first part this morning, I'll preach the second part next Sunday. <clears throat> but we're going to read the latter part of chapter 1. This will be primarily what we're going to, going to deal with next Sunday. But, but let's read beginning in verse number 18, Matthew chapter 1, very familiar passage. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and shalt, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and she called his name Jesus. Now the prophecy was given many years prior that a virgin was going to bring forth a child, and then his name would be called Emmanuel, and the name means, literally, God with us. And that's exactly what Jesus did. John chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And you come down to verse 14, it says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father. So in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. And the word was God and the word came to live among us. And in doing so, he let us see who God is because he was God. On this earth, all man, all God, not half man, not half God, but all man and all God. How can that be? Well, that's one of those things, you know, I mean, you, you got 100% and 100%. Uh, all, all you can have is 100%. But we we don't understand that. We can't comprehend. There's a lot of things we can't understand. But we accept them by faith because we are seeking to understand it with a limited mind, a finite mind, a limited amount of understanding. So we accept it by faith and move on. But God came to live among man when Jesus came to this earth. Now, in this passage, Matthew chapter 1, we we usually start where I did at verse 18. However, that's not where the chapter starts. And verses 1 through 17 are in there for a reason. It is the lineage or the ancestry 
of Emmanuel, of the Lord Jesus, the one who came to this earth. Now, I, I, I think it's important because it tells us how he got here. Uh, one of the great truths that I've learned over the years that has had an impact in my life is the significance of the steps that I can see in my life where I know God was working. Things that God did to make it clear that this is what he wanted me to do. And uh, and those steps all put together have led to, to where I am right now. And verses 1 through 17 in Matthew chapter 1, I think are a series of the steps that brought Jesus to this earth eventually. And they are important. Mark, I mean Matthew has a genealogy of Christ. Luke has a genealogy of Christ. They're different. Matthew starts with Abraham and moves forward until the birth of Christ. Luke goes all the way back to Adam and moves forward to the birth of of Christ. But they're different. In Luke's account, it is an emphasis on the bloodline of Christ. In this account, in Matthew's account, it is a an emphasis upon God's about upon Christ's sovereignty. Christ is the king uh, sitting on David's throne. And uh and so it's important to understand that there's a difference. Mark, by the way, doesn't mention the birth of Christ at all, and John only mentions it in the sense that we talked about it already. Um, and so what Matthew is saying here is is very, very important. Uh, I want you to notice a couple of things that are that are interesting. First of all, in this genealogy, you will see a recognition of the sovereign covenant. Now, what am I talking about there? Look at verse number one. The Bible says, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. And notice, he says, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, both of those are important. The the reference to him as the son of David emphasizes his royal lineage. The Bible says that Jesus was going to sit upon the throne of David. And so this, this genealogy is emphasizing the importance of that. But it also emphasizes Jesus' racial lineage. It goes back to Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish people. And so Matthew is, is linking those two things together. But then the second part of this ancestry. Not only do we see a recognition of the sovereign covenant, we see a revelation of the sordid corruption. Now, I don't know whether you ever stop to think about what your ancestry might be like. My oldest son got interested in our family tree and put one together and sent it to me, and we've had a couple of other family members who have done that, and they go back, and and uh, and if you if you do it right and you spend a lot of time with it, you'll have enough enough paper to cover the platform just about because it multiplies very quickly when you get very far back. We read the names and we think about who they are. You ever stop to think about what they were? I mean, do you have anybody in your ancestry that is not, you you wouldn't want people to know that you were a descendant of them? 
I mean, everybody's got somebody like that, wouldn't you think? Um, I read about a family that had a prominent uncle who uh, was uh, had died, and so they in they they got a uh, a professional biographer to record their family tree, but they gave him very careful instruction regarding Uncle George. Uh, said, told him to, to deal very carefully with him because he, in a drunken stupor, had committed murder and was subsequently sent to the electric chair. Now, they didn't want anybody to know that I, you know, that was my grandfather, whatever, who did that. So the biographer assured them that he could handle it, and uh, and so this is what he wrote in the in the history. He said, "Uncle George occupied a chair of applied electronics at an important government institution. <laughs> he was attached to his position by the strongest of ties, and his death came as a real shock." Well, there's some, there's some, some things included in Matthew's genealogy of the life, of the line of Christ that are very interesting. And I think there's a significant message in this passage. Usually, genealogies in the scripture do not include any women. But in this genealogy, there are five women mentioned. If you go over and read Luke's genealogy, it says so-and-so who was the son of so-and-so who was the son of so-and-so, and it just says it over and over and over and over and over again. This genealogy is different. And as we go through, I want to point out five women who Mar- or Matthew chooses to refer to in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, first of all, if you would, a forsaken woman. Look at verse number three. The Bible says, And Judas begat Pharez and Zerah of Tamar, and Pharez begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram. But Judas begat Pharez and Zerah of Tamar. Now that's an interesting statement. Judas is Judah, and Tamar is his daughter-in-law. So here's, here's the story. It's found in Genesis 38, and Scripture takes notice of Tamar's deceptive plan. Judah had three sons. The first one was named Ur, the second Onan, and the baby, the youngest, was Shelah. Ur marries this woman named Tamar. Ur ends up being a wicked kind of guy, and the Lord says, I've had enough of that, and he kills him. The Bible says that very very clearly. Ur was, was wicked, and God killed him. That was it. Well, Jewish law says that when the wife or the husband of a woman dies, that it's the brother's responsibility to take her as wife and to raise up seed. So Onan came and became her husband, and he displeased the Lord, and the Lord said, okay, you're done. And that was it. And so the next one's in line, that was in line, is Shelah. Well, Judah said, you know what? Uh, she married uh, Ur, and he's dead. And then she married Onan, and he's dead. I'm not sure I want Shelah to marry her. 
because he'll probably die too. And so he drug his feet, and Tamar wasn't very happy about that. In the meantime, Judah's wife died. And uh, and Tamar is getting impatient. Why, why does he not give me Sheila to be my husband? And, and, uh, and Judah doesn't see fit to do that. And so Tamar desires a, a very wicked plan to trap her father-in-law. She finds out that Judah is on his way to Timnath. He's going to Timnath to shear some, shear some, to, to, uh, cut the wool off of some sheep. And, uh, and, and so she, she disguises herself and gets on the, on the path to Timnath. She's waiting by the, the wayside there, disguises, disguises herself and she, uh, in, in effect, kind of tries to seduce Judah. And Judah decides that that's not a bad idea. And so he asks her, can I come in to you? And she says, what will you give me if I let you do that? He said, I'll give you a kid. Well, you don't have a kid with you. So how, how do I know you're going to fulfill that pledge? That, that, so what will you give me as a pledge? And he said, I'll give you my ring, my signets, and my staff. And so she says, okay, I'll take that. So the event happens, and Judah goes on his way, comes back home. Tamar goes back home. And when Judah gets back home, he sends somebody with the kid to give it to her. And they get up there, and they and they inquire, so where's, where's the woman that was sitting here by the road as a prostitute when I came to you? came through a few weeks ago. So there was no woman here, no prostitute here. And they couldn't find the woman to give the kid to. Came back home, three months later, Tamar turns up pregnant. And Judah is enraged. How could you do that kind of thing? What, what's, what's wrong with you? And he sentenced her to death. And then Tamar comes out and says, you know what? Look at this ring. Look at this signet. Look at this staff. The person that these belong to, that's who's the father of this baby. And Tamar is listed in the lineage of Christ. How would you like to have somebody like that in your ancestry? But scripture, I mean, Matthew, Matthew states it very clearly. Verse number three, and Judah begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. Two sons born, and Perez is in the line of Christ. There's a second woman that I want you to, to, to see. Look at verse number five. The Bible says, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, or Rahab. Most of you know the story of Rahab. She was the harlot in Jericho. Joshua was getting ready to lead the children of Israel into the promised land, and they had to conquer the city of Jericho. And God had promised that he would give them victory. And so Jericho, or, or, or um, Joseph, Joseph, Joshua, Joshua, that's, that's the result of my 
uh, memory not as good as it used to be. And, and I, I get the wrong person in the wrong place. Anyway, it was Joshua, not Joseph, who was leading the children of Israel into the promised land. And he sent two spies in, and they ended up lodging in the home of Rahab, who was a harlot. And uh, and the some of the king's men found out what was going on, and they sent people to come and arrest those men. And Rahab responds by first warning the spies and then hiding them. And then when the men came to arrest the spies, she told them that they were there, but they left and told them how they left, where they went, and sent them on an errant chase and then protected the spies. And then she tells them why. And that was because she was aware, as well as others in Jericho, they were aware of the power of the God that Israel served and, uh, and knew that their blessing, uh, had brought, his blessing on Israel had brought victory to them and it brought fear to their hearts. And Rahab is mentioned in the lineage of the line of Christ. Boaz, uh, was uh, uh, was born of of Rahab of a harlot. Then we come to number three, a foreign woman, and that is Ruth. Uh, Rahab, Scripture takes notice of her depraved profession. With Ruth, Scripture takes notice of her despised paternity. And, uh, and you know the, the story of Ruth as well. But let me just, let me just make a couple of statements. First of all, Ruth was a Moabite. The Moabites were bitter enemies of Israel. Uh, the reason she is involved is because Naomi and Elimelech, uh, who had two sons, Malon and Chilion, they moved to Moab to avoid a famine that was going on in the land at that time. This is, in the book of Ruth, of course. Uh, and when they got there, Elimelech dies and leaves Naomi to be a, a widow. She's there by herself, but she's got her, her two sons. The two sons end up getting married. And guess who they marry? Two Moabite women. Oprah and, uh, Orpah and, uh, and, and Ruth. And, um, then the sons die. Um, Malon and Chilion die, and they leave uh, Naomi there by herself, and she decides she's going to return to her home, and Ruth goes to her and says, I want to go with you. And you're very familiar with that passage, entreat thee not to leave me, and, or, or I don't remember the exact wording, but, but you know what I'm talking about. She's asking to go with, go with Ruth back home, uh, with Naomi back home. And she does. And as she's there in Israel, she starts working in a field. And in the field is this man, Boaz. And Boaz takes a liking to her and says to his, to his workers, it's, it's in his field, says to the workers, leave some behind to let you know, let Ruth glean, and so he does so, and Boaz eventually marries Ruth, and she becomes part of the lineage of Christ. Obed 
is their son. Then number four, we see a fallen woman. And you know this story well. Her name is Bathsheba. And the story is told in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Scripture takes notice of her disgraceful pregnancy. Here's the story. David, who was the king of Israel, at a time when kings go forth to battle, stayed home. He should have been on the battlefield, but he was not. He sent others. If you, if you read the story, you find that David sent others to fight, and he sent to get Uriah, and he sent to send Joab, uh, send Uriah back with a message to Joab to put him in the hottest part of the battle and then to leave him with a note. All the, everything he did, he just sent and sent and sent and sent and sent. Instead of doing anything, he just, he just sent others to do it. And he stayed at home and did his thing. But anyway, he's, he's at home when he should have been on the battlefield. And he happens to notice Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop. David inquires after the woman and finds out that she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That should have been the end of it. David should have said, okay, she's taken. I'm not going to pursue her any further. But that's not what he does. He ignores that, and because of his inflamed passion, says, go and get her and bring her to me. So they get her, and he she comes to him, and he indulges his passions. Bathsheba, though seemingly innocent, did, it would appear that she showed little concern for modesty when bathing and seemed to offer no resistance to David's advances. There's nothing in Scripture that says she resisted in any way at all. Some would say, well, David was king, she couldn't resist. Well, that's not completely true. She could have at least expressed a disagreement with what he was what he was uh, uh, proposing. But, uh, but as a result of this union, uh, Bathsheba becomes pregnant, and David attempts to cover his sin through a series of events. He calls Uriah home for battle and sends him home to his wife. Uriah refuses to go into his house. David got Uriah drunk and then sent him home again. Again, Uriah refused to go into his house. Finally, David decided that Uriah needed to be gone. So he had Uriah murdered. That was David's uh, legacy, part of it. And then David marries Bathsheba, and the son that is born of that union ends up dying. But then a second child is born, and that child is named Solomon, and he's in the line of Christ. You know, it's David is one of those unique characters. The Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. But his, his activities, this event involving Bathsheba is one of the most horrid affairs in, in all of Scripture. I mean, he, with a premeditated uh, attitude, took somebody else's wife and then had her husband killed. And thought it was no big deal. Convinced himself that he was justified in doing so. And yet the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. That's, that's a, a difficult thing for us to understand. But ultimately, David is the king upon whose throne Jesus is going to sit in eternity. And then there is fourthly a favored woman, and that is Mary. And that brings us 
back to the Christmas story. Now I want you to turn to the book of Luke, chapter 1. And I want you to see several things very quickly with regard to Mary. Mary has an encounter with God that changes her life very dramatically and in a permanent way. I want you to notice, notice three things about Mary's encounter with, with, uh, encounter with God. Notice, first of all, beginning, let's begin reading verse 26. Mary was startled by the angel. Verse 26, the Bible says, and in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. This is Luke 1, verse 26. Verse 27, to a virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the virgin, uh, and the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. First of all, she was unsettled by his presence. The Bible says when she saw him, she was troubled by his presence. She was troubled by his presence and what he had to say. What would you do if an angel came and spoke to you? Would you say, oh, well, that's just what I was expecting this morning? Probably not. Do you suppose you'd be startled? Well, I think that Mary was startled. She was, she was surprised. And, uh, and, 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 and you would wonder what, you know, you'd be, you'd be unsure of what's going on. She was unsettled by his presence. She was unsure of his purpose. And, uh, and, and just as you and I would be. Uh, but not only was Mary startled by the angel, she was sobered by the announcement. And there were several concerns. Look beginning in verse number 30. The Bible says, The angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now she was sobered by the announcement, and it's just, it's, it's, I mean, you could, you can understand why that would be the case. Consider first of all the source of the announcement. It would be sobering to get that kind of a message from God. God speaking to you directly or through an angel would be a sobering thing. Now I've had God speak to me, but God has never orally communicated to me. I've never actually heard physically his voice. I've heard his voice in my spirit. He's dealt with me in my heart, and he's shown me things through circumstances in life. He's led me, he's guided me, he's made it clear to me that certain things are true and that certain things I ought to be doing and and, and certain path I ought to be taking. But, uh, but this was different. 
the angel came and said, I've got a message for you from God. So the announcement came directly from God. That was sobering to her. The substance of the announcement, there were several things. We focus on the fact that uh, the, the angel said, you're going to have a child and, and you're not married. You're a virgin, but you're still going to have a child. But, uh, but what about the thing he said before that? He said, Mary, you are favored of God. That would be a sobering thing. God has chosen to favor me in some way. The truth is, all of us have been favored by God in a wonderful way. But Mary was chosen specifically. And God said, you are favored. You have a favored status. You have a a favored position. You have a favored role to play. That would be very sobering. She was, it was sobering because of, of the fact that the angel said she was going to have a child, even though she was still a, a virgin. On top of that, this child would be called the son of the highest. And this call, this child would eventually sit on the throne of David. Now, my wife and I have three sons. I was, I prayed for them before they were born. And I prayed for them since they were born. And I'm very thankful for what God has done in their lives. They all know the Lord. And, and I'm, I'm thankful for what the Lord has done and what the Lord is doing in their lives. But I've never had the idea at the beginning that there was anything of any great magnitude that was going to become uh, of that that was going to happen with them. In other words, they're not going to sit on somebody's throne. I never I never expected that they might be president of the United States or any of those kinds of things. What if the Lord came to you and told you your son is going to be the savior of the world? That's what happened to Mary. That's sobering. The child would eventually sit on the throne of David. And then it was sobering. It was uh 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 it was it was startling, it was sobering, but it was also significant. Uh, significant because it was personal. It was her, her plans that were going to have to change. And she was the one who was going to have to explain these events to those who would be very judgmental, even though they did not have all the facts. Uh, that's a pretty common thing, isn't it? To find people who have it all figured out without knowing all the facts. You, you know, when we, when we choose to assume that we know things that are not true without getting all the facts, all the facts, we are doing the people that we are judging a great disservice. You ought to wait until you know everything before you make. Our, our news media, they're masters at, they're not assuming, they're lying. But, uh, those are not, those are not good things. And so she had the burden of having to be able to explain to people why she was pregnant before they actually got married. That would be a a heavy burden to carry. But not only was it personal, it was prophetic. Mary understood the gravity of what she was hearing. She realized that the angel was telling her that she was going to bear the Messiah. The sad thing is that Israel in that day did not understand that's what happened. And they rejected the Lord Jesus as their Messiah. Now, why why are these accounts given in this passage? 
Matthew chapter 1. Why, why are those five women included and why is that information there for us to see? I think it's because God wants us to know that His grace is sufficient for every individual. It does not matter. What it boils down to, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter who your parents are. What matters is your receptivity to the, 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 the work of the Spirit in your life. God's love is unconditional and God's pardon is available to all. In his book called The Grace and Truth Paradox, Randy Alcorn writes the following. Wesley Allen Dodd tortured and murdered three boys in Vancouver, Washington, 15 miles from our home. Dodd was scheduled to be hanged, the first U.S. hanging in three decades, shortly after midnight on January 4th in 1993. At dinner that evening, both of our daughters, then 11 and 13, prayed earnestly that Dodd would repent and place his faith in Christ before he died. I agreed with their prayer, but listen to this, only because I knew I should. You ever feel that way? I know that God's grace is sufficient, but in this situation, I sure do wish it wasn't. You know, we, we have a tendency to feel that way about certain things, especially if it's a personal, a personal offense or if we've suffered personally as a result of it. I've always been astounded at the attitude of some people who are believers who can be so forgiving toward those who have taken the lives of their children. But he said, I agreed with their prayer, but only because I knew I should. And then he said this, Dodd's last words, the last thing he said before they pulled the, pulled the lever and, and he, he was hung. He said, I had thought there was no hope and no peace, but I was wrong. I have found hope and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there were a number of people standing around in the gallery outside looking on, watching the, the death. And they were anything but happy with what he said. There were gasps and moans that came from the gallery and the anger was palpable. Their attitude was how dare someone who has done something so terrible as he has done say that he had found hope and peace in Jesus. Did he really think that God would let him into heaven about what after what he had done? And then somebody yelled out, shut up and go to hell, child killer. You won't get off so easy. The idea of God offering grace to Dodd was utterly offensive. And I think that's why these women are in this passage. Not all of them. Two of them were, 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 were Gentiles. That's, that in itself is a, is an important uh, message because it's not just the Jews. God, sent Jesus, and Jesus died for those of us who are not Jews. That's a great thing. We're, we ought to be thankful for that. That's part of the message, and we ought not to overlook it. We think genealogies are not important, but this is important. Jesus came to die for all, and his grace is sufficient 
for all. And his grace is unmeasurable. You can't, you can't measure it. You can't put a, a lid on it. You can't, you can't in any way confine it. It is sufficient for every person, every situation. It doesn't matter. And that's the message. In a moment, we're going to sing, uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. That's a Christmas song. And it's got a, a, a little bit of a, uh, I mean, it's a joyful Christian song. It's one that we enjoy singing. But please, please, as you listen to the song, as you sing the song, pay careful, careful attention to the words. Because the words in that song describe the importance of what the, the Scripture taught in this genealogy. And I trust that you'll let it have, a, have an impact. Let's stand together with heads bowed and eyes closed.